this week we're going to talk about the, the truth about love. And uh, it's going to be real good. And unless you were binge watching a TV series on Netflix last week, uh, you probably, and you know, if you were doing that, you totally lost track of the calendar and what was going on uh, in the rest of the culture. You're probably aware that Friday was Valentine's Day, right? Most of you are at least somewhat aware that that happened. Um, and maybe, maybe I'm totally behind on this. I'm not totally sure, but uh, for the first time this year, I saw that some people are calling February 14th, instead of Valentine's Day, they're calling it uh, Singles Awareness Day, which interestingly, uh, the acronym is SAD. Um, <laughs> Yes, yeah, I'm not sure, I'm not sure who came up with that little ditty, but uh, I'm not sure it's, you know, totally accurate. Obviously, you can have lots of fun by yourself, but um, you don't have to share your candy with anybody, right? So uh, that, is, that is the way some people are going about coping with Valentine's Day, and while some people celebrate Valentine's Day in a dark room with a pint of ice cream, you know, and a box of Kleenex, um, other people go all out. And they use the day's association with ideas of love and romance uh, to express those in various ways. Uh, interestingly, uh, according to the National Retail Federation, uh, this year, 2014, Americans will spend, have spent roughly uh, $17.3 billion on Valentine's Day gifts. $17.3 billion. And I don't want to be a downer here, but here's an interesting little factoid I'm not sure if you're aware of. Um, According to a report by the United Nations, it would cost roughly $10 billion a year to bring clean water and sanitation to uh, the 40% of people in the entire world that don't have it. Did you remember the number from before on Valentine's Day gifts? That's $17.3 billion. It would cost us $10 billion a year to bring clean water and sanitation. I believe 2.2 million people or so. Don't quote me on that one. But I think it's something like that uh, die as a result of a lack of those things. Roughly... Um, 40% of people don't have access to that on a continual basis. It would cost us about $10 billion to do that. And here's the thing. Um, I'm not saying don't buy anything on Valentine's Day. That's not my point. I'm just saying that if we would give the same amount the average person spends on Valentine's Day uh, towards clean water and sanitation for the world, uh, we could almost accomplish it twice. If we would give what we spend yearly, on Valentine's Day, I think it was average, the average American spends $135 or so. I'm like, man, who's average? I don't know anybody spent $135 on Valentine's Day. Good Lord in heaven. Um, but, uh, and I want you to hear me. I'm not picking on Valentine's Day. I just think it's helpful sometimes for us to hear where our money goes. Uh, because we're often quick to uh, deny having the funds to give towards things like basic humanitarian relief. Um, and some of us like to push back against tithing or giving towards the much more important work, eternal work of furthering God's kingdom and preaching his gospel. I think it's real important for Christians to care about people having clean drinking water. It's more important to care about them getting the hope of the gospel. Uh, and it seems like a lot of times we, we have an issue with giving towards either. And we'll, we'll appeal to the fact, well, I just, I just don't have the money to do that. Um, but when you, here's the thing, and I want you to remember, I'm not picking on Valentine's Day because you look at things that like how... In America, yearly, we gladly spend $20.4 billion on pet food. Uh, we spend another $10 billion on ice cream. Do you remember how much it would take for clean water for everybody in the whole world? It's $10 billion. 
I like ice cream. I'm not trying to ruin ice cream. I don't want you to get a sad refugee face every time you eat ice cream from now on and think, my God, I'm taking clean water from the rest of the world. It's not my point. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic about this. I just want us to think. Is it really, here's the thing, when we look at those numbers, I think it's, it's 20.4 billion on pet food, 65 billion or so total on pets, including grooming and all the other things. And I'm not against pets. Yay for Foofy and Fluffy and, you know, Meow Meow and all the rest. I like them. That's great. And I'm glad that they bring you solace. However, um, it, it makes me think that potentially our inability to give generously to God and others is not so much about too little money, uh, but oftentimes it's more about what we do with it. I think that's something to consider. Um, when we look at kind of where things go and what gets spent on what, right? Um, so back to Valentine's Day, I'm off of that. That was really fun, wasn't it? I knew you were going to like that. I was expecting to be blown back literally by the audible force of all the amens that came from that because I, I know you really like me talking about those idols of money and stuff. So we'll get away from it now. We'll get back to Valentine's Day. We'll harp on that a little bit. Um, some Christians totally ignore Valentine's Day altogether due to its quasi-pagan origins when you kind of trace it all back. Where did it come from? Some would be mad that I'm even mentioning it from the pulpit. Um, but I think as with any other big event or holiday, uh, it's a really good missional opportunity for us. When everyone is focused on this incredibly important word called love, uh, I think it's an awesome opportunity for us to talk about what it really is. When the conversation is there, it's about romance, um, it's about who I love, if I'm loved, that comes up around Valentine's Day. There's a lot of people real happy about their perception of what love is, or they're real sad about the fact that they don't feel like they have any in their life. Both of these are opportunities, these are open bridges for us to talk about what does the Bible say about what love is. It has a lot to say, and it's real, real important. Top of the heap when it comes to priorities, according to uh, the scriptures. So, um, I just want to say also for a full disclaimer that I bought both my wife and daughter some flowers, um, and it's mainly because I like blessing them, and I'll take any excuse uh, to see them light up when I come through the door with a bouquet for each of them. It's just real fun for me uh, to see the look on their face, and I love them. Uh, and more specifically with Lucy, kind of especially for her, I don't want her first flowers to be from some punk kid in sixth grade. Um, <laughs> You know, the way I see it going down is him walking up, uh, you know, obviously he's going to notice she's gorgeous, and so here he comes with his, you know, single stem rose with something smooth to say, and I can just see her stopping him right in his tracks saying, hold on, bud, beat it. My dad gets me a dozen of those all the time, you know, hit the road. And in, and in so doing, she'll not know the incredible uh, charity she's giving him in, in his life being spared because of that whole, you know, exchange not going any farther, so... Um, it's good. I need to buy my daughter flowers, so don't get on my case about it. Um, but I love her, and I, I buy him flowers whether it's Valentine's Day or not. So, um, However, <clears throat> you know, you can be mad at me about that if you'd like. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13, if you will. Um, some of you will be tempted right there because you've read that a few times to so say, oh, okay, I know what's going to happen. Please don't do that. This is real important. I believe the Lord has something he'd like to say to us tonight. One of our core values here at Love City is an understanding of our call as God's people to redefine love through the scriptures. Uh, you don't even have to be super observant to understand that love is one of the, if not the, most misunderstood words in our vocabulary. Many people think of Valentine's Day as the embodiment of what love is. Uh, you'll see that throughout culture. Uh, 
many of you have heard this story, if you've heard it before, forgive me, but I, I don't have a better one for kind of highlighting where we've gotten as a culture with our understanding of love. Uh, it was several years ago, this time of year, uh, probably a little earlier on running up to Valentine's Day, and I was in uh, one of the big, you know, big box stores everyone would know, and, uh, and I'm walking down the aisles, and, and I look up. You know, sometimes for, they'll have a seasonal aisle, right? And so then they'll, they'll hang stuff to draw your attention to it. And above this aisle is a sign, a very large sign. And what it says is, love is candy. And um, you may think this is ridiculous, and that's okay. Uh, but I felt a legitimate rage begin to, to rise up from my insides because I begin to think, how many people are walking by reading that and in no way being bothered by the fact that love is being equated to candy? It's been reduced down. I mean, this is kind of an over-exaggeration of where we got, but is it not true that the word love is thrown here and there and everywhere? Uh, it's regarded with very little sanctity. Uh, and kind of the epitome, I, I mean, I'm, I'm legitimately looking for something to climb on to get this sign down. I mean, that's how angry I am. Looking for a manager, like, brother, are you serious? Uh, so that's kind of where we've gotten as a culture that most of us probably wouldn't even bat an eye at that kind of expression of our level of understanding of what love is. So but here's the problem with that. It's, a, it's honestly, it's, it's a serious problem. You could be like, come on, man, you know, you're, you're overreacting a little bit. But my problem with a sign that says love is candy is not once but twice in 1 John chapter 4, the statement is made that God is love. That's a big statement. That's a real big statement. And that's something that should conjure in us an incredible amount of curiosity because you will not go anywhere else in the scriptures and find your God likened to, compared to another noun. There's a lot of adjectives that describe God. I don't mean to get too English teacher on you here, but we're not going too far for adjectives and nouns, right? Everyone still with me? Don't glaze over. I won't stay here long. Adjectives are describing words, right? So, uh, I am hungry, right? Describing word being hungry. I being the noun in that sentence, right? So, I is, a, a noun is a person, place, or thing, right? So, we got God is holy. That's an adjective. You don't see in all the scriptures where it says God is holiness. We've got all kinds of adjectives that describe God. You do not see another place in the scriptures where, like this, where it says God is love. That's a big deal. That, we have to care about what, I mean, what does that mean? How far does that go? How deep does that run? What is being said here when God himself is being called and being compared to love at that level? It's a big deal. Um, and so we as the Christian, we read that, we should care what that means. Uh, and what, what it means right off the bat, what we can tell is that that means love is not simply an emotion. Uh, that means it can't be a feeling. It can't be romance. It can't be sexual attraction or sexual acts as it is often reduced to be. That can't be love. If God is love, it, it, that's not enough. God is not a feeling, is he? God is not an emotion. God cannot be reduced to some sexual attraction. Of course not. That's ridiculous. And yet we, we use all these words to describe what love is. These are common things that would go along with it. Um, you know, here's, 
we have to grapple with this because in our culture today, you can love God, you can love your mom, and you can love pizza. But if God is love, are, are, are we doing the right things with that word? Are we understanding really how deep that goes, how important that is? Um, surely, if God is love, it can't be candy. I'm not bowing down to worshiping a peep. Not a whole box of them. You're welcome to do what you want, but uh, I'm going to worship Jesus, okay? No sugar. If God is love, then he is its source and he gets to define it, not us. If God is love, he is its source and he gets to define it, not us. So we have to figure out what is God's definition of love? What does he mean when he says love? That's a big question. What is love? This is something that philosophers, uh, poets have grappled with for centuries. It's not an easy question. Um, I've studied and prayed through and thought about this question for a long time, and I'm not sure this definition really does it justice, but if for our intents and purposes, pulling from the scriptures, I will give you my best shot at what love is, okay? So Plato took a crack at this, but others, uh, and I'm not trying to put myself in their league, but here's a, defin- a working definition. It is a part of the very nature and character of God himself. It is a divine attribute that we can experience and express, though imperfectly, because of the effects of sin. What is love? It's a part of the very nature and character of God himself. It is a divine attribute that we can both experience and express. It, it flows from and is tied to inseparably from the God who is its creator and source. It's not just a feeling and it's not just an emotion. It's not even the deepest feeling or the strongest emotion. Which oftentimes I think if you pushed people for a definition, walking around every day uh, here in America, that's, they'd say it's, it's a really strong feeling. It's got to be more than that, though. Because God is true, man. Let every, let every man be a liar. And 1 John says God is love, not once but twice. It wasn't an accident. It's not a misspelling, not a misinterpretation. That's exactly what John meant to say. So we got to work with that. we got to figure out what does that mean. How deep does that go? So it's a part of who God is, but what does love look like practically? Okay, so I said that it's a part of his nature. I said that it's, it's something we can experience and express, uh, though imperfectly because of sin. What does love look like practically? What, how do, could I draw it? And here's the thing. Here's the, you want to come to the best illustration you're going to have any hope of coming across when it comes to love. Again, in 1 John, we are pointed to the cross. It says in 1 John 3, 16, by this, we know love. So really what he's saying here is, by this, I'm going to define love for you. Here, let me help you understand. It's probably deeper than we can ever fully grasp, but here's your best shot at getting it. Here's what he says. By this, we know love, that he, being Jesus, laid down his life for us. Jesus on the cross will be the clearest, most concise, most precise picture of love that you're going to find. And so, as we try to understand, what does it mean when it says that God is love? What does it mean when God commands us not only to love each other, love our neighbor, but also to love our enemy? What is he calling me to? When again and again and again and again I'm given a command that I should love you, 
and I should love my neighbor, and I should love my enemy, what am I actually being asked to do? Am I supposed to have a general sense of positive feelings towards them? Is that what loving them is? What am I called to? And what we see at the cross is complete, total, selfless sacrifice. I'm called to do that for you, my kids, my wife, and the guy that hates me. It's a big call. It's a big deal. And honestly, it envelops all of our walk with Christ. What we understand and how we walk out this love thing is absolutely paramount to where we will be in our relationship with King Jesus. The greatest example, the most beautiful, perfect illustration of love you will ever find. You want to seek to understand love? Sit and contemplate, meditate upon, fix your eyes upon his cross. And in that, you will have the best possibility of beginning to understand how deep and love and far and wide God's love is. Now, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 13 together, and we're going to learn some, of, some more about practicalities and specifics of how God sees and defines love. So generally, he points us to the cross. We see some specifics spelled out about what love is and isn't in 1 Corinthians 13. Very beautiful chapter, oftentimes reserved for weddings, but honestly something that it would do us good to read every day. I want to caution all of you who can recite some of this by heart, or you had that sign, maybe your mom or grandma had that sign, uh, my mom had one crocheted in the bathroom that said, love is this, love is this, right? You know what I'm talking about, it's got pastel colors, little wreath with leaves around, it's really good. Um, it's great, you know, you spend a lot of time in there, so it's good, contemplate love while you're taking care of, you know, business. Um, it's good, we, huh, we need one in our bathroom, can you make that happen? Uh, but here's the thing, I, don't, don't tune me out because you think you've heard this before. We're talking about potentially the most important thing. I'm convinced the most important thing any Christian can think about, focus on, uh, be preached to about, we're talking about God's love here. Don't get any deep, we're in the deep end of the pool. You might, think, you might think you're in the shallow end, but you better put your waders on. Put your floaty arms on because we're going to get deep here. This is what matters most. It's made clear throughout the scriptures. Okay? Now, I want to say this also before we read 1 Corinthians 13. I want you to understand that I know uh, that much of how we use the word love so flippantly in our culture comes down to language. It comes down to the fact that the New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, and the Greeks had more words to describe various affections than we do. They were a little better at this than we are. Uh, they had eros, which is like erotic, passionate love, right? We kind of had this, we use love as a junk drawer word for many affections and positive feelings. They had eros, which would describe erotic or sexual passion. They had phileo, which is kind of brotherly affection, right? I love my brother different than I love my wife, hopefully, right? Unless you live in Utah or, you know, sometimes it gets weird out there. But um, uh, you had pragma or long-standing love as, as the type that, that a, a married couple has been together a long time. They would have pragma. You hear pragmatist or pragmatism in that, right? Kind of practical, that long-standing connectedness uh, that comes from doing life a long time together. Uh, and also agape, which is the all-encompassing God kind of love. And here's something interesting. Try to track with me on this. You don't see agape, that God kind of love, uh, used almost at all in ancient literature until the New Testament is written. And I think some people would disagree. I think that is evidence to the fact it shows us that the writers of the Scriptures understood that when they're talking about the love of God, that none of those other common words would do. 
When talking about the kind of love that God was trying to get us to understand, the kind of love that flows from his very nature and character, eros doesn't cover it. Phileo doesn't quite tell the story, right? Pragma doesn't, it can't get you to understand how deep it really is. And so they, they used this other word, agape, to try to set a distinction between all of these other affectionate feelings and what it is God did at the cross. Real, perfect, deep, selfless, sacrificial love. The kind that would cause King Jesus to be nailed to a cross for his enemies. That kind of love needs its own word. And my, my encouragement to us is because we don't have all those other different words, then we need to protect, compartmentalize, and, and give a little more sanctity and respect to the word love than we do. All we've got is love. So let's take that word and put it where it belongs. You can like pizza and it's okay. People will get your point. You see what I'm saying? I love God. And I love you. And I think, it'd be, I think it'd be really prudent of us to protect where we put that word. I think it would maybe elevate the importance of God's love in our minds and hearts a little bit. It's not a common thing. It's found nowhere else other than in his nature and character. And we get to share in it because we're his children. It's, it's real deep. I, I, I contend that the word love should be reserved for explaining our affection for God and for other people. I don't think I should love my house. I like my house. It keeps the rain off me. It's nice. I don't love it. It's funny. Um, it's funny the, the fingerprints you start to see on your kids. Uh, when Lucy's watching TV, um, you know, she'll be watching a cartoon, and, and they, you know, the, the pervasiveness of this in the culture is evident even in cartoons because all the, I'll tell you, Probably not one goes by where one of these little cartoon characters doesn't say, I love cookies, or, you know, I love my tricycle, or, you know, what, whatever it is. And Lucy, <laughs> Lucy corrects the TV. She'll stop, hey, you don't love that. She stops and says it right out loud. So I, every, you know, she gets a piece of candy or whatever happens, you know, because dad's proud every time. That's right, baby. They don't love that cookie, do they? But I love you. I tell her. It's good. It makes me proud. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going um, to read 1 Corinthians 13. One through, it's only 13 verses, so we're going to read the whole chapter. And then we're going to look at a, just a few of the dozens of, of just deep, beautiful truths we could pull out of this. Okay, so let's read this chapter together. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child. And reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. There's three things we're going to pull from this, and like I said, and I am not exaggerating, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of really deep, important truths that could be pulled out of just those 13 verses. We're going to deal with three. Aren't you glad you started looking at your watch? It's all right. We're going to make it. Uh, First thing we're going to pull out of that, love is the most important thing. Some of you don't like that statement. Let's look at it. Verses 1 through 3, first of all, let's deal with that. If I speak with tongues of men and angels but do not have love... I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Another way of saying, I'm pretty much hot air. I've become useless. If I have the gift of prophecy, know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. I am nothing. That's a big statement, isn't it? I, you know, <laughs> I'd like faith to move the snow pile in front of my house, much less a mountain. That'd be pretty awesome. To be faith that can move mountains guy, right? Uh, you got a problem? Go to that guy. Guy's got faith that'll move a mountain. Pretty substantial. Pretty big deal. Yet, have that and have not love, what's he say you are? Nothing. Does, does that cause some curiosity? How can that be? Guy seems like he's got something going for him. He's faith that moves mountain guy. Seems like a winner. But if he doesn't have love, somehow that's totally and completely all the way nullified. Hmm. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So apparently you can be super nice, generous, and all kinds of other good attributes, but not have love and love the way that God defines it, and all of it can count for nothing. That seems to put love at a, at a pretty high level of importance. Let's look at verse 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. You see, what he's saying is, in the verses above, he's pointing out to you the fact that most everything else when we cross into eternity is going to pass into nothingness. We're not going to need much of what we experience here. And he's holding up these three things that are eternal, faith, hope, and love He's willing to make the distinction here. Love is the greatest of these. Why does he say that? We need to understand that. We can read that and say, okay, love is most important, but until we understand, okay, so why is that? We may not pursue love with the level of passion and veracity that we should. We, we, may, not, we, may, be, we may be pacified with a surface level understanding or, or maybe not even that far of what God's love is and what it is we're called to when we're called to love others. We may be okay to just kind of settle with that, but I'm not. Why is love greater than both faith and hope? They're all eternal. They're all important. I can't please God without faith. You heard that? You read that somewhere? I can't please God without That's an important thing. I need to have faith. I'm saved by grace through faith, yet love is more important than that. Why is he saying that? Are you curious? I'm curious. 
Why is the writer of Scripture here telling me that love's that important, that it rises above these other eternal and essential things for my salvation? For me to have any, I can't have a relationship with Jesus without faith. I can't. It's impossible. Yet love's more important than that. Pretty big deal. I need to know why it's a big deal so I can also assess myself to know, am I walking in that in the way that I should be? What does this look like to love like God loves? Right? It's important. Here's the thing. Three eternal things are listed, and love is listed as greatest. This is why, even if you've heard me plead with God's people to pursue with all their strength the love of God, we cannot hear it enough. There is no deeper or more all-encompassing subject than this. All parts of your faith and life in Jesus is touched by the love of God. Our understanding of love will either, it will either propel or cripple our ability to grow in Christ. Absolutely crucial. Cannot be overstated. Just ask Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, or anybody else in the scriptures that you want to. You want to take a little walkabout with me? Let's just see. If we go, let's go all the way back. We can, uh, we can look at uh, Mark 12, right? Uh, the scribe comes up and says to Jesus, Teacher, what's the most important thing? What's the most important commandment? King Jesus is given an opportunity to let us know of all the commandments. See, in, in today's culture, we would expect them to say, Oh, they're all equally important, right? Because we don't want one thing to be held in high esteem above another. It's all equal. We're all equal. Everything's equal. Let's have a grilled cheese sandwich. No, 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 no. Jesus is willing to say one thing is more important. Actually, he has to give him two. Because the scribe asks for, for one commandment. Teacher, what's the most important commandment? Jesus gives him two. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Why does Jesus give a two-part answer to a one-part question? Because they can't be separated. Go to 1 John. We're going to go there. We're going to do a whole series. We're going to take 1 John as a book, and we're going to do an expository series through 1 John. And you may not live through it, and I don't know if I will either. It's going to be a lot of fun. But we're going to be back here again talking about love, and it won't be too long because you can't talk about it enough. You can't hear it enough. Every time you see me, just go ahead and ask me. You walking in love today? You walking in love today, brother? It's that important. I need to hear about it all the time. You can't separate loving God and loving people. First John tells you, how are you going to love God that you haven't seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? Mm. Says you're a liar if you say you can do that. Mm. That stung, didn't it? That stung worse than the $10 billion for ice cream. Woo! You having fun? I'm having fun. Okay, so that's Jesus. Jesus says loving God and loving people. That's the most important thing. Heard that somewhere before. Somebody's mission statement. I can't remember who it is. Um, Okay, so you got Jesus, all right, we dealt with him, right? Paul, we're going to talk about it again, right? Uh, all through whether Paul's talking about, first of all, he says right here in 1 Corinthians, uh, he wrote this, faith, hope, and love, greatest of all of these is love, gives you the whole 1 Corinthians 13 chapter to emphasize over and over again, you can have all this other stuff, but if you don't have love, you're useless. You can go to Romans 13, we'll be back there in a minute, he says, you're going to fulfill the whole law by fulfilling this one command, to love your neighbor as yourself. Go to James, he calls it the royal law. Peter says, above all else, keep fervent in your love, one for the other. How many times do you get to say above all else, one love city? How many times do you get to say that? Above all else, right? So here's all else, and here's above that. It's an absolute statement. I only get to say that one time. If everything else is down here, there's one thing I'm going to set above everything else. This is most important. Keep fervent in your love, one for the other. 
Why? Again and again and again and again. You can't find anybody to disagree. If they disagree with Jesus, it wouldn't matter anyways. But bottom line, we can't find any lack of harmony. When it comes down to it, what is emphasized over and over of highest importance? It's love. It's a big deal. So all of us that think we got this figured out and we've probably plumbed the whole depths of what God's love is and how it applies to the way I live my life and how I relate to God and other people, we probably need a swift smack in the back of the head. Probably need to spend some more time in the scriptures and some more time on our knees and some more time in worship and ask God, continue, Lord, please reveal to me, flush out from me any misunderstanding about this and replace it with your truth. Help me to love more like you do every single day. Amen? You happy about that or you sad about it? I'm happy about it. You're going to get happier in a second. We're going to get happy, okay? This one, I'm going to land the plane in happy town, okay? Sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we leave it in sad town let you just stew there a minute. We're going to get happy, okay? So just look forward to it. All right, number two. So love is most important, right? Anybody disagree with that? Come see me afterwards because you, you somehow tuned out for the last 10 minutes. Okay, here's number two that we're going to pull out of this. Love and selflessness are inseparable. Love and selflessness are inseparable, okay? Let me read 4 through 7 to you again. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Pretty much the rest of these other statements can be summed up in that. Love does not seek its own. Was Jesus doing what was best for him in submitting himself to the cross on our behalf? That was not what was best for him. That was painful and difficult. And yet he thought that was probably the best thing to do. All the while we were his enemies. Mm, Okay, moving on. Does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Somebody need to hear that. Somebody in here, you have an account of a wrong suffered that you're holding on to. The love of God won't allow you to do that. You need to forgive that and lay it down. Right now, don't hold it on anymore. Unforgiveness and bitterness is poison in your heart. The longer you leave it there, the more damage it does. Love won't tolerate it. Jesus had many, many wrongs account to account on each one of us. He suffered many wrongs on your behalf. But he's forgiven you. He went first. He showed the way. We have to respond in like kind. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, it hopes all things, and endures all things. Love and selflessness are inseparable. You go through all, all those love is, love is, love is not. It's, it's giving you, it's taking away every possible selfish motive in relating to other people. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not brag. It's not arrogant. It's not about you making everyone else think you're awesome. It's about being low and being humble that God may raise you up. Love doesn't seek its own. Love's not out to get its. Love's not about getting rich or dying trying. Love's about figuring out how to serve somebody else because God's glorified in that. And there's joy in doing what humankind was made to do, which is serve God. And in serving each other, What did Jesus say? Anyone who gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in my name does it to me. When we serve others, we love others. When we're humble, when we consider ourselves less important than others, God is glorified. God is lifted up by that because that's not natural. What do people normally do? 
in our own minds, we are most important. It's about a survival mentality. It's about making sure I get mine. So it's very unnatural when people disregard that natural instinct and are more about loving, caring for, and serving others than they are about themselves. The beautiful thing in a community like this, this is why church family is beautiful. If everyone here will do that, people will be taken care of, will take care of each other, and God gets glorified in that action. It's not a bunch of people coming together trying to get from each other. It's a bunch of people coming together trying to give to each other, and somebody walks into an environment like that, they won't find that anywhere else in the world. Is the corporate world like that? Do I have any corporate world ladder climbing folks in here? Is the corporate world like that? Let me figure out how to serve you. No. You, you can't go to your job and find that. That's not what it's like. It's because it's unnatural. It takes the, the power of God, the love of God, that envelops our hearts by the Holy Spirit. People don't act like that naturally. When we... When we live as humans just naturally do, we, we act more like animals than, than, than what it is God created us to be. We're supposed to be his, his image bearers. We're supposed to be loving beings. Um, and the results of the curse has caused us most of the time to not primarily be loving. We're primarily selfish. Primarily concerned with our own needs. But love comes and vanquishes that. Love and selflessness are inseparable. Number three, love never fails. Love never fails. This can be confusing for some of you. Some of you may say to me or you may be thinking, but I've known lots of people who loved each other, but something happened and they fell out of love. You no more fall out of love than you fall into love. Can I help you with something? Love is not a hole in the sidewalk that you trip and fall into. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. You don't fall in or out of love. It is a part of the very character and nature of God. Your follow-up question, you could be thinking, so are you saying that if I love somebody or I was with somebody and we broke up, that that wasn't love? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying the scriptures tell me right here that love never fails. That love that comes from God never fails. Now here's the thing. I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever in my mind that many, many people have deep, strong affections for each other. They have really deep emotional connections with each other. However, I think because of a lack of teaching on this subject, we are often allowed to think that our deep feelings and our strong affections, that that is the totality of what love is. It's not. It's not. Because those feelings wane and those affections can cease. What does 1 Corinthians 13 tell me about love? It never, ever fails. You're with me, right? You're just scared to say it out loud. You think you get the wrong answer? Love never fails. It won't fail. It can't fail. Love that comes from God never fails. It doesn't wane. It doesn't shift. It doesn't move. You don't fall out of it. Okay? So, um, you know, those that have been married for a while and you've been tempted to think, man, we've just fallen out of love. No, you haven't. You didn't fall into it. You don't fall out of it. The love of God is, is sustained primarily through relationship with him. And so if you're, feeling, if you're feeling less of the tangible feelings and affections that oftentimes come along with 
loving somebody, uh, it may be something that you need to push into the Lord in prayer and ask for him to help you. Maybe your heart's grown cold. That is possible. But love that comes from God never fails. That's, not, that's less condemning and more really exciting. It helps me. Because I love my wife and I want to be with her till I die. I love my kids and I want to have a great relationship with them until I go off this planet. I love this church. And I, I don't want the love that God has put between us that he is giving us so that we have the power to do the mission that he's called us to do. I don't want that to fail. I don't want the ties that have bound us together for mission to ever fail. And according to this, they won't. Now, the Bible does say that there are some that will be among you and they'll go out from you. And it really what part of what's going on there is that means maybe they were never with you. But when the love of God ties people together, nobody's going to come along and cut it. That's encouraging to me. I'm happy about that. I'm glad to know the love of God trumps um, selfishness and, and whatever else could try to separate us. People have often asked me, and this is somewhat along those lines, they'll ask me, when should I marry? Uh, how do I know I'm ready? And here's what I would say to you. When the Spirit of Christ so fills you, and the love of God so compels you, that your greatest desire is to lay down your life for the rest of your life for someone else's good, that's when you're ready to get married. Because that's what you're called to. That's what marriage is about. See, there's all kinds of you know, sociological research about why the divorce rate is where it is, and I don't think you can point to one single thing, but I, I do believe a very strong issue and a very strong element of why we have so many people that get married and then get divorced is when you've got two people coming together looking for their needs and expectations to be met by somebody, you've already got a recipe for disaster. You've not laid a foundation with Christ as the cornerstone because Christ didn't come to us saying, here, I need a bunch of stuff from you and then maybe we can have relationship. I have a bunch of needs I need you to fulfill. Christ came first and he said, I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay the price you can't pay. I'm going to make it totally and completely available for us to have relationship. I'm going to make it real easy, and then you can step into that by faith. That's the blueprint we should follow for marriage. You should go into marriage looking to give, not get. And the beautiful thing about that, honestly, Ephesians 5, it shows us that, that our little marriages as Christians, it points to the big marriage between the church and Christ. Our marriages should bring glory to God. Our marriages should point to the fact that Jesus changes hearts and that the love of God is real. Because again, when people see married folks not bickering, hating each other, wishing they hadn't done it, but they see married folks flourishing, taking care of each other, preferring each other, uh, laying their life down for each other, being selfless with, with each other, uh, it says something. It says something about the reality of what happens to a Christian when Jesus changes their heart. It's real. I'm not the same man I used to be. Many of you are not the same that you used to be. You know Jesus did something, and it's undeniable. And it should affect the way we love each other in marriage. You should come to marriage looking to give, not get. I mentioned it earlier. Romans 13, 8 through 10 tells us that loving one another is the fulfillment of the whole law. And here's kind of the last point I want to make to you. 
that living, living in and being consumed by love and by the love of God, it will conquer sin in your life. The love of God is the key that unlocks many of the shackles of sin binding our hands and feet. And some of you are nodding because you're generally agreeable, but you're not totally understanding yet. And I'm hoping, with the help of God, I can paint a picture. I want you to see the equal sign between the love of God compelling and, and totally driving your life and you being less prone to be entangled in the sins that so often encumber you. I want to paint that picture for you. Some of you focus so hard on your sin, you pray over and over that God would give you the strength to resist temptation. I want to say to you that's a noble prayer. And I'm glad that you care, that you strive against sin, that you don't want to just succumb to it and just continue to be in that same cycle. But perhaps asking God to increase your understanding and capacity for love would be more effective than asking him to continually give you the strength to resist temptation. I want to show you why that's true. Because some of you are confused. You're not seeing how loving others has anything to do with your struggles with sin. You see those as kind of two separate issues. Yes, I'm sure I should love people. Yes, I should struggle against and fight against the sins that tempt me. Yeah, I see those two things, but how do they, how do they cross? I, I, first of all, I would say that there are many of you here who know this from experience. Uh, there are some of you that were on a self-destructive path for years. You were enslaved by various sins and addictions, and you probably never would have stopped if it was not for the realization of how unloving your actions were to your family and your friends and those that loved you. Some of you understand how your love for somebody motivated you to check yourself on what it was you were doing. I know of women who were the undisputed champion party girl of every scene and never intended to stop until they got pregnant and then gave birth to a child and maybe understood love for the first time. And it completely revolutionized and radicalized their view and perspective on everything. Because they looked that child in the eye and realized what love was. Maybe before never had an intention or care about what damage was being caused by their lifestyle. Some of you need to focus less on your sin and more on how much Jesus has loved you. And then seek to love others the same way. I know, it's, it, it's weird. This guy telling me to focus less on dealing with sin? Yes. Because I think some of us just get in this cycle of condemnation, thinking about, and, and we spend so much time thinking about our sin that it, cre it creates this kind of monster in our own minds. I think some of us would do better, most of us would do better, to focus more on how much Jesus has loved us and then seek to love others in the same way. I need you to imagine a scenario with me, and some of you don't like to play imagine, but I really want you to do your best to put yourself mentally where I'm going to ask you to. Some of you need to close your eyes so you're not distracted, but I really want you to think through. Don't just, don't just listen to me, but I want you to do what I'm asking you to do. I want you to imagine with me the person you love the absolute most. If you need to close your eyes to do that, I want you to do it. I want you to imagine the person you love absolute most in the whole world, okay? Get that person in your mind now. I want you to imagine that you're walking down the street, okay, and you see that person, the person you love the absolute most, they're across the road. They see you, and immediately they start to cross. They're crossing the street towards you, and as they step out in that road, a car comes flying around the corner, and it hits them. 
They're thrown up in the air, 20 feet. They slam into the ground where they lay bleeding and limp and lifeless. The person you love the most in the whole world is laying there, broken. Now, I want to know what your reaction would be. Would you hopefully pray as you rush to their side to administer first aid and call for help? Or would you shrug your shoulders with indifference and hurry home to watch some porn on the internet? Would you maybe rush home to get drunk or high enough to forget about it? Would you lie and pretend that you never saw it because you don't want to be inconvenienced by having to go to court? Would you steal whatever was in their pockets and run away? No, of course not. Because of your great love for this person and the urgency of the situation, indulging in some selfish, fleshly sin at that point is ridiculous to even think about, is it not? Who in here would do anything but rush to that person's aid and do whatever they could to try to help them? In that moment, what's crossing your mind is nothing to do with even if you were walking down the street heading towards the intention of some sin, you're going to be distracted from that and focusing on the fact that the person you love the most in the whole world desperately needs your help. Is that true or not? How many of you, you just witnessed the person you love most in the whole world hit by a car, laying bleeding in the street, you're going to be thinking about, man, I wish I could get home and watch some porn. Is that what's going to be crossing your mind right then? Or I wonder what's in their wallet. You be thinking about, man, I got a bottle of whatever sitting at home. Man, I can't wait to get to that. Is that what's going through your mind when you just see, you saw them bounce off the pavement? No. Urgency is going to grip your heart. Every system in your body is going to take over. Adrenaline's going to dump, and all you're going to care about is getting them help. Because you love them, right? Here's the deal. Here's the problem. The call of our king is to love others as he has loved us. And we walk by people every single day whose spiritual condition is just as urgent as the physical condition of that person we love getting hit by a car. Every day you walk by people in much more trouble than the person crumpled on the ground. If they knew Jesus and they're laying there bleeding out, they're in better shape than the person walking by you that doesn't know him. And here's the deal. The fact that we are so often distracted by temptations and sins tells us we either don't really believe that those around us who don't know Jesus will spend eternity in hell or we don't love them enough to care. It tells us one of two things. If we really believe the urgent situation someone is in if they don't know Jesus, it should affect the way we think about everything. I don't have time to be thinking about indulging my fleshly desires if I just saw my wife or one of my babies get hit by a car. I'm not thinking about this, that, or the other thing. I'm thinking about one thing. How can I help them? It's urgent. Here's the thing. It's urgent when the guy I work with walks by that doesn't know Jesus. Now, I'm not saying I, I can't grab him, shake him, you know, make him love and serve and obey Jesus. However, my mind and my prayers and my focus could be more on that than it is 
whatever else tries to distract me throughout the day. When I'm compelled by love, when I'm overtaken by love, when I care more about the spiritual condition of other people than I do satisfying my own sinful desires, you see how love comes and begins to cut the legs out from those temptations. All of a sudden it's ridiculous. When I hold up here the potential to be walking in anointing with God's power and His love affecting the eternities of other people, I have this potential or this over here. I can give play to some fleshly sin that matters nothing in the end. I hold those up and realize this means nothing. This means everything. If I'm compelled by the love of Christ, I pick being on point and being on mission every time. I would never, ever, ever let myself be sucked into the situation where I'm less equipped to help somebody, less equipped to speak the love of Christ to somebody, less equipped to share the gospel with somebody. Now, does being totally and completely uh, enveloped by the love of God in all of our life mean that we're never ever going to fall into temptation again? No, of course not. Romans 3 tells us that we're all going to sin and fall short. I'm talking about much less than we normally are. Are we encumbered and weighed down by temptations and sins? Much less than we normally are is selfishness dictating our actions. The call of Christ is for love and selflessness to compel us. It's the same thing that compelled him to the cross. And he's who we follow. You know, when you're walking in the snow, man, somebody's walking in front of you, you can just step right in those footsteps. That's what I want to do with Jesus, man, all the way to the cross. I just want to step right where he stepped. I just want to follow him right up there and lay my life down the same way he did. And he's not calling me to die on a cross. He's not calling me even to die for him today. He's calling me to live for him, which some days is harder. As more of your life is consumed with the selfless purpose and mission of leading others to the hope of Christ, the power of sin and temptation will be weakened and diminished. Do you see that? Do you see how that's true? Do you see how more of your mind and heart is enveloped with the love of God, the less sin and temptation will have a hold on you? When you're more about the Father's business, there's less room for the devil to come and whisper in your ear. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. As we live lives compelled by love, following the example of Jesus, our Savior King, we will experience freedom from sin and the joy that comes in knowing and fulfilling our purpose. God wants, you know, people say all the time, I just, doesn't God want me to be happy? Yes. Absolutely, He does. But rarely is what's going to actually give you joy and make you happy what you think it is. Indulging in selfish desires, giving place to sin and, and fleshly lusts, that's, that's not where happiness is found. Just ask everyone who's walked that path. They'll tell you. There's brokenness down there. There's pain and hurt. God wants the best for you. God does want joy for you. He loves you, and he proved it at the cross.